You have it? Yeah. Alright, take a quick bite. The food was clearly uh, an apple, and the wine is a uh, red wine. I, I hope you <laughs> gave me a French red wine. <laughs> there is somewhat conflicting evidence on whether or not red wine is good or bad for Parkinson's disease. We chose the apple for two reasons, actually. First, because we saw that you know increasing fiber has been shown to help ameliorate Parkinson's. But the other reason is that pesticides that are sometimes used <laughs> in the growth of apples is actually or trigger environmental toxin that is associated with Parkinson's. But I was wondering if you could use one word to describe how you were feeling when your eyes were closed and when I was coming in with some food. I was uh, anxious of what I would discover. But then I had the reward of the sugar and the alcohol that counteracted the anxiety I had. That's good to hear. Good to hear. <laughs> Hi, my name is Peter, and I'll be your host for the Gastronauts podcast. Here at Gastronauts, we are committed to understanding communication in the body, and in particular, how our gut talks to our brain. We'll be taking a deep dive into the mind and motivations of leading scientists and their work, and hope that by getting to know the individual behind the research, we can find out how scientists think and how we can build a better scientific community. So, come join me as we explore our inner space on the Gastronauts Podcast. fortunate to have Dr. Michel Nunlist speak with us. Dr. Nunlist did his PhD in cardiac electrophysiology, which is studies in the electrical activity on how the heart works, how it beats, in Dr. Tung's laboratory in Johns Hopkins, and was awarded his PhD at the University of Louis Pasteur. He later went on to complete his postdoc in Dr. Schumann's lab in Hanover, Germany, where he studied the enteric nervous system, which is the system of nerves and supporting cells that controls our gut. Since completing his postdoc, he started his own lab and is currently the director of neurogastroenterology at the University of Nantes. So thank you for coming on this show, Dr. Nunist. Could you tell us a little bit more about the key functions of the enteric nervous system and some of the efforts in your lab to study this? Thanks for your, your invitation to let me uh, speak at this uh, very interesting podcast session of uh, Gastronauts. As you mentioned, the main focus of our laboratory is uh, to study the enteric nervous system, what is uh, commonly called uh, as uh, the, the second brain. And indeed, uh, as you, you know, the, the gut is the second neurological organ after the brain. And what we are studying is uh, mainly how this nervous system that is integrated all along the gut wall, mm -hmm. composed of about uh, 200 million neurons, wow. 1 billion uh, glial cells, how this nervous system is regulating major gut function, motility, barrier function, how also this nervous system 
is uh, altered in various uh, diseases, not only disease of the GI tract, mm -hmm. but also G diseases of the brain, neurological disorders in particular, neurodegenerative disorders such as Parkinson's disease. Mm -hmm. And the last uh, research access that we are developing is how to target this nervous system to restore organ function in disease condition. That's really interesting. It sounds like you have a lot of efforts that are going on in your lab, and I kind of want to break it down a little bit. The first thing I have, I think, mm -hmm. that I want to ask about is a lot of people may not be aware that the gut has as many nerves. You said 200 million enteric neurons and then millions more of glial cells. How does that compare to the number of neurons in the brain? Is that more? Is that less? Of course, in terms of quantity, it's uh, much less, but right. uh, quality is not always dependent on, on the number. <laughs> but uh, but uh, you have, of course, uh, just to, to give you an order of magnitude, it's about a thousand times less mm -hmm. nerve cells in the worst sense in the gut as uh, in the brain. Mm -hmm. That's really nice to have a visual representation of how many cells are part of this enteric nervous system. So it's clear the enteric nervous system is essential for our day-to-day -day function for essentially life. You hinted a little bit earlier about some of the other efforts in neurodegenerative disorders that you were looking at. And I was wondering how the enteric nervous system plays a role in some of these neurodegenerative disorders like Parkinson's or Alzheimer's. And I was wondering what efforts you have done on that. I think this is a very uh, complicated question. And I think trying to prove uh, causal role of the enteric nervous system in brain disorders is something that is still very speculative. But I think how we can integrate basically these two nervous systems is that probably they are affected by common mechanism because by definition, the two organs, we consider the, the gut as a neurological organ. So like the gut is a second brain? Second brain in terms of quantity, but probably from an evolutionary point of view, it's the first, the first brain, brain, the wow. original brain, where neurons have born. Because when you look at very primitive uh, organs, like yeah. jellyfish, they have already uh, neurons. They don't have any brain, these animals, but they have already neurons within what is considered the gut. So uh, to go back to the, to the question, why is the nervous system affected in brain diseases in a large sense, not maybe only in neurodegenerative disease, but mm -hmm. also maybe also in psychiatric diseases, mm -hmm. is probably because these uh, disorders are in part associated with genetic uh, defects, uh, which all regulate neuronal function since they are co-expressed both in the first brain and in the second brain. Right. They can induce... GI comorbidity as well as a brain right. dysfunction. Okay. This is probably also the, the rationale why so often GI comorbidity is observed in many neurological disorders yeah. because they, they share common pathway and they share common origin also. Right. So not many people are aware of kind of the GI comorbidities or the GI issues that go along with the nervous issues. I think a lot of people, when they think of Parkinson's disease, they think of it as a movement disorder, kind of a little bit of the tremor, the unstable gait. But many patients with Parkinson's often have constipation or diarrhea. Is that correct? Exactly. This is one of the... What is also interesting to say is that these symptoms or part of them can be considered as pre-symptomatic symptoms. It comes before the movement disorders. Disorder. It comes before the movement disorders. And there is this type of triad of uh, 
pre-symptomatic symptoms, including uh, sleep disorders, in including uh, anosmia defect in olfactory uh, smell, in right, smell. Yeah, having difficulty uh, with difficulty smell. in smell and the third one is uh, GI motility disorders such yeah. as constipation and dysphagia which are dysphagia often difficulty swallowing swallowing okay. and gastric emptying uh, mm -hmm. slowing which are considered as a frequent comorbidity that is presymptomatic so and these could be looked at kind of maybe warning signs if someone has two or three of these symptoms. Exactly. Okay. It's not just one symptom. It's not because you are constipated that you are prone to develop Parkinson's disease. Yeah. But if you have uh, uh, sleep disorders, uh, anosmia, as mm -hmm. well as constipation, then they increase the risk to develop Parkinson's disease. So this has set the, the, the hypothesis that maybe if... GI symptoms are present prior to the development of motor symptoms. The disease could originate within the gut. the gut. And probably it's still a very hot debate between pros and cons because you could have GI symptoms just because the system is more sensitive to the generative processes induced. Mm -hmm. And probably... Where the disease starts is very complex. So you're talking about kind of the GI or the gastrointestinal manifestations, whether they're coming because the nervous system is more sensitive or have these manifestations shown, I guess, is this kind of causational, chicken or egg? Which one came first, right? The abnormalities within the GI nervous system versus the abnormalities in the central nervous system. <laughs> What is a driving hypothesis of uh, not a pure brain origin uh, in Parkinson's disease, but also, more importantly, in other neurodegenerative diseases, is that key molecules involved in the regulation of function, like TOV or Alzheimer's disease or mm -hmm. synuclein. Right. All have misfolded proteins that are You have exactly this misfolding protein that can be induced by probably a large spectrum of environmental factors. Mm. And effectively, this is one of the full diagnoses, the real diagnosis. And what is interesting is that access can only be done as a biopsy in post-mortem. So the definitive diagnostic of mm -hmm. Parkinson can only be done post-mortem. And the reason it can only be done post-mortem is because we cannot grab that part of the brain right. in someone who is Ado living. Who's living, Correct. exactly. Okay. So the idea is maybe you had to think about another organ where we can do on a routine fashion mm -hmm. biopsies without being life-threatening or with minimal risk. Ah, so you're looking at a different organ where you can grab some tissue Shoes. where you're, the person is still alive. He's still alive. <laughs> and see if this is kind of a diagnostic marker. Organ which has neurons ah. and where we could use it as diagnosis. And what better than the gut that can fulfill this condition, right. meaning everybody in his life Mm -hmm. still nowadays be, can uh, have has the opportunity or to undergo a biopsy a colonoscopy yeah, okay. and uh, the gut has also as mentioned nervous system so this was a little bit the driving idea of looking at whether from a living patient we could uh, in the gut on biopsies uh, identify the same neuro and a pathological hallmark so the idea supports that at least two organs are affected and whether treating the gut would improve treatment of brain function right. this is something that is something that you're interested in that is something is it known at this point or is it something that we need to continue to do research on 
Personally, I don't really believe when patients have been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease that you have a chance to fully restore the disease uh, because you can slow, of course, mm -hmm. the evolution of the disease by uh, modulating disease progression. But there are some data suggesting that, and it's an interesting but still controversial study showing that in patients... Uh, that had had an appendicectomy. Mm -hmm. okay. So people who had their uh, appendix taken out. Had their appendix taken out, had a significantly lower risk to develop over the course of 30 years. And what was even more interesting was that this observation, this lowered risk, only was observed in patients living in, in, in rural area, mm. but not in patients living in cities. Mm. And there's very different lifestyles in people who live in rural areas versus cities. And, yeah, and one of the hypotheses was that uh, probably they are more exposed, and this has been shown, to pesticides, for instance. Mm -hmm. Farmers uh, which are exposed to pesticides develop higher risk of uh, sporadic Parkinson's diseases. Okay. But again, this study is a controversial. One has always to say mm -hmm. this is a study performed, of course, on a which fulfills, I think, the good criteria of epidemiological study, meaning you have a very, very huge 900,000 patients that were included uh, mm -hmm. over a long time evolution. But you have other studies showing that there was no effect of appendicectomy on the risk of Parkinson. Mm -hmm. And another one on showing that, in fact, it increases the risk. So, so uh, the data very, is still a little muddy. The, 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 the data is muddy and uh, probably... Uh, point out to the fact that you have more research needed. So it seems like Parkinson's is kind of a combination of some genetic factors and then certain environmental toxins right. or something that happens to affect in, the enteric nervous system. And the brain, and the and brain. independently, whether one is linked to the other mm -hmm. is not known, but affecting the two organs, of course, because of their function, they will affect responsible for, of course, motor and non-motor symptoms and GI dysfunction. Ah, okay. So understanding the interplay between the enteric nervous system mm -hmm. and the central nervous system and how things can go wrong in disease is somewhere where we have a lot of research to do right now. And there is a lot of research to do, especially to understand the mechanism of disease. And once we understand the mechanism of disease, we can propose efficacious a preventive treatment. I mm -hmm. think this is mainly what is uh, yeah. the goal. It's challenging to do Parkinson's research because we have to look at these environmental factors over time, and then there's a certain time window where these environmental agents will have their you know, most damaging effects, and getting the timing right yeah. is just as important as understanding the entire progression. And I kind of wanted to take that to segue a little bit more so about your progression kind of as a scientist. I wanted to ask about your path, right? It's being in the right place at the right time or having the right mentors at the right time. And I was wondering, could you tell us a little bit more about your training path? From the personal point of view, I think you mentioned very rightly that encountering the right person at the right time is critical and crucial to develop your career. But overall also, you have to have, and I think this is where science offers very much uh, reward. You have to be uh, passionate for, for science. And mm -hmm. if you really want to, to do a career in science, you have uh, effectively to, to be curious. I mean, it's like 
not aging. You have to keep your naivety, keep your motivation to discover, to have no a priori, to be really open-minded. Mm-hmm. And you have also, of course, to be hardworking. And I remember when I was uh, doing my PhD in, uh, in Hopkins, there was a flyer where you I saw a, a cigogne. This is a bird that eats frogs. Okay. This bird had a big mouth open, had part of the frog in his mouth, <laughs> and the frog was one of the arms was uh, holding the neck of this bird uh, in order to prevent it to, From to swallow. Wow. And this is a little bit the image of the scientist, is that as long as you don't give up, you will always have hope and finding something. Uh, and if you give up, then... You'll be swallowed you by... You'll be it. swallowed by, <laughs> by, the, by science. So it's never give up. And this is the message of hope. I mean, this yeah. is very critical because your hypotheses are not always wrong. Your experiments don't work. But if you insist, you insist, there is always a solution. So I think it's also a message of optimism. You, you always have to be optimistic to, to go forward. And mm. in science, there is... If one way is not the road is not the right one mm-hmm. then you have to go to another way and at the end the door will always open to, yeah. to success if you insist mentioned briefly that maintaining an optimism, maintaining a kind of a dedication to solving the science, uh, when something doesn't go the right way, go another way. How do you know that this is not the right way to go? How do you know when to change directions? This is the gut feeling, you know? The gut feeling. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's why we have nerves in the gut. That's Mm -hmm. why we have a second brain. Yeah. As a graduate student, sometimes I'm thinking, you know, I'll do some experiments and they aren't working out. Should I, you know, give up and move to a different project already or should I continue to go? Or, and then how no, long I, should I continue on that process? No, I think well, it depends. I mean, I, I don't like to give up. I mean, and you have also to be confident in yourself that right. what you are doing is the right thing. And then if you don't give up and you believe that what you're doing is right, either by yourself you will find it's not right, but often it's your first idea is also the good one. And again, the gut feeling, I think. This is the good, the key. Trust trust your gut. Yeah, trust your gut. And also trust, hear what your mentors are saying. I mean, that's it, yeah. Mm-hmm. You only have a few mentors in your life, and it's important to develop those relationships with those mentors. You got your PhD from the University of Louis Pasteur, but your scientific mentor at that time was Dr. Tung in Johns Hopkins. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, could you tell me a little bit about that process, about how you decided to go to Hopkins to do research? This was not a gut feeling Mm -hmm. that drove me to Hopkins, but it was another type of feeling, meaning that I met someone. (laughs) This was my girlfriend was American, so it was not a gut feeling, it was just a feeling. It was Mm -hmm. a relationship I had with an American and just life events. I mean, not everything is programming in your life, and science is not everything. So if you combine gut feeling with other type of heart feeling. Of course, then I chose uh, uh, Hopkins because of, of, of the reputation. And also I chose BME, uh, the BME department in Hopkins because I was a BME by definition. And then you, I tried. And this is something you have to do. You have to try. And then uh, I wrote many letters. And mm-hmm. then and Dr. Tang, this is the, the hazard also, the good encounter at the right time. You don't, mm-hmm. and when things are mature, then it happens. 
So how did you get interested in electrophysiology or in how electrical circuits regulate our body? I see that your passion, to my interpretation, is understanding how these circuits function. No, it's, it was understanding how biology works, how mm. life is working, how organs are functioning, because this is basically also an engineering question. And uh, what better and more complex machine for an engineer than understanding how the human body is working, which mm. is much more complex. So I think this is a little bit what drove me as an engineer towards uh, biology. Mm. And as mentioned, then the opportunity was that I had to do this in the heart. And so this was a little bit my, uh, what kept me all along my, my career is looking how electricity, basically, how bioelectricity is involved in the regulation of biology, of biology and of organs, the heart first, mm. and then the second uh, gut as a second, because mm. by definition, as a neurological organ, bioelectricity plays a central role in functioning of the gut. Of the gut. Yeah. And so this is a little bit my... Uh, the common path. So with your engineering background and understanding, you know, the electricity and how circuits play a role in fundamental biology, yeah. was it kind of a natural segue from moving to the heart to studying the gut? Did you have any reservations? Were you thinking, oh, you know, maybe the <laughs> gut isn't so similar to the heart? No, because I was, uh, no, the, the, the link between the two was the methods, because mm -hmm. uh, to measure uh, electrical activity in neurons at that time, it was rather by microelectrode. And of course, if you want to understand the activity of a neural circuit, it's not just one neuron at the time that regulates the circuit, but it's the global response of many neurons that regulate circuits. Yeah. The advantage of optical sensing is that you, uh, with optical measurements, is that you can have a global measurement of electrical activity in a whole network. Mm. So it's much more closer to answer your question, is how the network is altered in diseases than rather one by studying one cell. So, uh, so this is a little bit how the technology was used as a common pathway to ask a question in the heart, which was distinct from a question mm -hmm. in, the, in the enteric nervous system and in gut uh, physiology. So understanding the methods to understand the network is kind of what you've used. You used it in the heart and you saw there was applicability exactly. to the gut as well. And that's exactly. kind of a... And then I tried to, to, to go further by integrating what was observed in terms of uh, neuronal activity, in terms of function, because the ultimate goal is to understand the function of the organ, whether motility or more barrier function also, which is uh, more of interest, which was more of interest uh, to, to me. What made you have a seamless transition from studying cardiac tissue in the heart to gastrointestinal tissue in the gut was the fact that you had this method, you had yeah, this yeah. Okay. technique that you could easily apply from one field to another. Being able to apply techniques to different fields is very powerful, but I also think it's important to apply certain guidelines that you think are important for conducting science. Are there any of these principles that you instill in your mentees or people that you train? Are there any fundamental principles to approaching science that you like to share? I mean, the most important uh, aspect is to have a rigorous uh, scientific approach in what you are doing. And science is also uh, repeatability. I mean, you have to validate all the, the concepts. I think this is something that is uh, crucial to study. Uh, enfin, it's a crucial uh, aspect that I considered as a fundamental uh, in 
and in research in particular. It's very basic uh, principles, I know, but I think this is the, the core uh, structure of uh, science on which rigorousness is uh, fundamental, especially in a world where science is diffused very, very rapidly. It's questioned very frequently. And I think this is, I think, our only uh, way to survive is that we do rigorous science. And what we have also to know, it doesn't mean that it's right because science is here to change. It has to evolve. Right. But at the time you do science, it has to be right. right. So it's essential to have good rigor or a good dedication mm. to your research, mm. the reproducibility is something that you think is essential, something that you want to instill in others that you train, that we want our science to right. be reproducible. I think there can be findings that are contrary to what we discover, but w our experiments need to be reproducible. Yeah, exactly. I think that's really powerful because we live in a climate where news on certain scientific discoveries can be challenged very quickly. There has to be an understanding of the amount of effort, the amount of time that we put in each one of these discoveries, and to continue to instill that dedication in future scientists yep. is something that you think is powerful. I think this is fundamental, especially, I think, uh, where uh, this credibility, because science everywhere is also more and more driven by, by money, and mm -hmm. especially in times of crisis where money is short, especially in this world, I think, driven by money, it's very important to keep your integrity. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Nunes, for being on our podcast. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure for me to talk with you. Thanks. Wow, I feel that's a really important message to take home. At the beginning of your scientific journey, passion helps kickstart your research. But it is the integrity, it is the rigor that helps your findings stay afloat and stand the test of time. I think it's a lesson we've all heard before, but something definitely worth revisiting. How do we want our work and the work of our collaborators to be viewed years from now? Just think about it. And thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you all on the next episode. For more of our content, you can follow us on Twitter at GutBrains or visit our website at thinkgastronauts.com. The Gastronauts podcast would be impossible without the incredible team that we have here. Meredith Schmel is our producer and theme music composer. Dr. Laura Ruprecht is our social media manager. And special thanks to the founders of Gastronauts, Dr. Diego Borges and the Borges Laboratory.